Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. Sweet potatoes are one of my favorite things to eat and subsequently to grow. I can eat sweet potatoes baked, fried, mashed, chipped, like tater tots, as a pie, you name it, I'll eat them. And it only takes a few plants to give you a really good harvest, so they're perfectly suited for smaller garden spaces. Now, despite the name, they actually aren't potatoes, and what we eat isn't a tuber, it's a root. They're a tropical crop that needs at least four months of warm weather and warm soil. But there are many short-season varieties of sweet potatoes available today, and they will grow in cooler climate areas given the right circumstances. And bonus, they are drought and heat tolerant, and they don't have a ton of pests or diseases, so they're great for beginning gardeners too. We're getting the beds ready right now for planting our sweet potatoes here, so I thought it'd be a good time to drop a little knowledge on you and get you into the sweet potato game too. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening years ago in a small corner of my suburban backyard, then moved to a five-acre lot outside city limits and expanded that garden to half an acre. What started as a way to provide for my family turned into a love for digging in the dirt and providing for others. Slowly, my husband and I built our small homestead into a 40-acre market farm through lots of trial and error and successes and failures. Eventually, I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture, and along the way, I discovered there is power in food. So I want to share everything I've learned with as many people as possible. This podcast is all about helping you become a better gardener and a better eater. Whether you're a seasoned gardener or have never grown a thing in your life, I want to give you the knowledge you need to get the biggest and best harvest you can. So settle in, grab that garden journal, and get ready to just grow something. So let's start this episode off straight away with the DRL. What am I doing, reading, and listening to? What am I doing? I am desperately at this point trying to maintain some type of fitness routine. The season is in full swing, so between planting and weeding and harvesting and CSA deliveries, farmers markets, and everything that goes along with that, I'm just not getting much dedicated fitness time in. So, I mean, let's be honest, I'm getting a workout in, right? I can't count the number of squats that I've done in the past three weeks between planting and weeding and harvesting. And there's been a huge amount of walking during all of that. So the steps are definitely there too. But for me, exercise isn't just about the actual fitness part of it all the time. It's oftentimes just a way to get 30 minutes where I'm blasting some music and lifting some heavy weights or throwing a podcast in and running a few miles. And that's all I'm doing. It lets me clear my head for a hot minute. So do I need to be doing it right now? No. Do I want to be? Yes. I just need to adjust the routine a little bit. So that's the goal for this week. And what am I reading? Absolutely nothing. There is a lonely stack of books on my bedside table, another one next to the chair in my living room, and even more in a digital stack on my Kindle. And none of them are getting cracked anytime soon for the exact same reason why my running shoes are staring longingly at me every time I open my closet. It's just that time of year. They'll all be there waiting for me when I finally get my act together. And what am I listening to? Well, that I'm doing a lot of. Time in the gardens and time on the road means time for music and podcasts. And lately, I have been jamming out to a Spotify playlist called 80s Pop with such classics as Take On Me by AHA, uh, Come On Eileen by Dexie's Midnight Runners, 
Under Pressure by Queen and David Bowie, and there are so many more fun classics. The playlist is from Stephen Madrid, and it is loads of fun if you want to check that out. So let's dig into the question of the week. Remember, if you have a question, feel free to reach out on social media, send me an email from the website justgrowsomethingpodcast.com, or leave a message at the link in the show notes and I will answer it. There are no silly questions if you honestly don't know the answer. Now this week's question is another pretty broad one that I get asked all the time. I have people bring me pictures on their phone to the farmer's market or they'll text me or message me on social. But sometimes I'm just given like a description of what's going on, which is a little bit more difficult without any pictures. The question is, what's wrong with my plant? <laughs> yes, that is very broad. Generally, if it's accompanied by a picture, I can usually help at least narrow down the problem, but even then it's really difficult. And I've had a lot of practice and some training in identifying plant pests and nutrient deficiencies and disease signs and symptoms. So, of course, even very experienced gardeners are going to have a difficult time figuring out what is going on with their plant when it just doesn't look right. And the reason this is so difficult is because signs and symptoms of plant disease often look very much like insect damage or herbicide overspray. And symptoms of nutrient deficiency or toxicity can not only look very much like each other, but also look like transplant shock. It's just not easy, even for veteran gardeners and trained professionals. And by trained professionals, I mean people who have advanced degrees in plant pathology to determine what is going on with a plant without definitive lab results or seeing the insect pests for themselves or whatever. Unless you have experienced the exact same signs or symptoms in the past and then found the cause, you are really only making an educated guess. So... How do you get to the educated part of that? Here are a few ways to at least determine whether you're dealing with an insect pest or a disease or a nutrient issue or something else. First of all, if you've done a soil test, you're going to know if your soil is depleted of some nutrient or if it's in excess. And if you're keeping a garden journal, you'll have notes of what you've added to the soil and when, or what plant food you used and what was in it. That's a huge start to figuring out whether or not you added too much of something or not enough. Refer to the resources that I listed in episodes 18 and 22, and a couple of articles on the website, all of which I will link to in the show notes. There are visual references that you can use to help you determine if what you're seeing has to do with the nutrients. Now, once you rule that out, consider the age of the plant. Was it just recently transplanted? Was it properly hardened off? Was it transitioned into the garden properly? Was there a very sudden change in the weather or has there been a more than usual amount of rainfall? Check the soil moisture. Many times plants will show signs of stress if they've gotten too much water, either from rainfall or from too much love from the gardener. We talked about this most recently in episode 91. I will link to that in the show notes too. And then we move on to signs of insect pests and plant disease. Some of these mimic each other and it can be really difficult to decipher. Some of them are completely related to weather patterns or herbicide drift or other abiotic causes. 
to start, know what's normal and know what's possible. What do I mean? Know what your plant is supposed to look like at each stage of development and know what pests and diseases affect that plant in your area. In episode 55, I talked about identifying insects in the garden, and there are lots of online resources dedicated to plant pests and diseases by region. Um, there are USDA databases. There are diagnostic resources. I will link to a lot of these, but it all starts with knowing what is normal for the plant that you're growing and where you're growing it. So if the damage that you are seeing is a sudden transition from a healthy part of the plant to a very unhealthy part of the plant, then it's likely not a disease. Abiotic damage on plants, meaning physical damage, not something that's caused biologically, is usually very uniform or has regular distribution. There are often very clear lines of demarcation between healthy and unhealthy plant tissue. Oftentimes, it might be more than one plant species is being affected, so you're not just seeing it on your tomatoes, but it's on your lettuce too. These are all good indicators that it's something other than a disease. Not always, but usually. Symptoms of plant disease are usually arranged irregularly. The transition from the healthy tissue to the damaged tissue is usually more diffused. And you'll usually see varying sizes and stages of the severity of the damage. And that's indicating that there's some sort of continuous process going on. That indicates it's more than likely biological, a plant disease. Again, this takes practice and experience. And hopefully you won't have a ton of experience in this in your garden. Online resources can be a great tool. Image searches can be really helpful in narrowing down what it might be and then use the indicators that I talked about to narrow the results down further. And then if you still aren't sure or you need additional help, go to your local extension office or university. If you really need to know, especially if the diagnosis that you've come up with is something that might be pervasive in your soil and could spread, then get outside help from someone who can test for plant diseases. Your local university folks often have a very vested interest in knowing how pervasive a particular plant disease or insect is in a given area, and they have access to resources that you may not. Don't be afraid to get in touch with someone who can help you. And yes, if I can help identify the problem, I absolutely will. Feel free to reach out to me too, and I will do what I can, or I will direct you to someone who's better equipped than me. There are plenty of people out there who do nothing but that for a living, and they are way better at it than I am, and they can help give you the solution too. So, let's dig into sweet potatoes. The scientific name for sweet potatoes is Ipomiae batatis. It's in the Convolvulaceae family. That's the morning glory or the bindweed family. If you grow sweet potatoes as an edible crop or as a decorative vine in the garden, you will see the funnel-shaped flowers. They're very distinctly of this family. They're very, very pretty. Other members of this family include the very showy vines that we grow as flowers, those morning glories, but it also includes the pain-in-the-butt weed that we get out here known as field bindweed, which we spent years eradicating from our fields and which still rears its ugly head every single season. It's very pretty, but it chokes everything out. 
Now, sweet potatoes are native to the tropical regions of South America and are really the only domesticated member of the plant family grown specifically as an edible. And actually, many of its cousins are actually poisonous. Which brings me to the cultural significance and ethnobotanical uses. Remember, ethnobotany is the study of a region's plants and their practical uses through the traditional knowledge of a local culture and its people. These uses are cited as a historical and anthropological resource. Never ingest the parts of any plant without being absolutely positive of its effects upon the human body. Now, the leaf buds and the roots of sweet potatoes have been used medicinally for treating nausea, shortness of breath, croup, asthma, constipation, and to treat chest congestion. The sweet potato is a tropical perennial, but we cultivate it as an annual in temperate climates. It is one of only seven world food crops with an annual production of more than 100 million metric tons per year which means it ranks 13th globally in production value. It's grown mainly for that tuberous root, although sometimes the young shoots and the leaves are also used. Now, there are two major types which delineate how the sweet potato is used and where it is cultivated. In most developing countries where it's used as a staple food, the type of root that's grown has a white to cream colored flesh and it's very bland. It's not a sweet flavor. It's dry in texture and it often has a high dry matter content. Now in contrast, the type that most people use in developed countries has that yellow or deep orange color that we're used to seeing, a very moist texture, very distinct flavor, high sugar content. This is what most of us are used to as a sweet potato, and that's what I'm going to talk about growing today. There are also purple sweet potatoes, and those are more akin in texture and flavor to the white ones, sometimes maybe between the white and the orange, but they definitely lean toward the less sweet and more dry. Now the yellow or the orange flesh color of the most common ones is directly related to beta carotene, which of course is a precursor of vitamin A. This is part of what makes sweet potatoes so healthy. Other nutrients supplied by sweet potato are vitamin C, iron, potassium, vitamin B6, and they are a good source of fiber. So let's talk cultivation. Sweet potatoes like that warm weather. In fact, the warmer, the better. They are actually the very last summer crop that we put into the ground, usually not until at least the first week of June here. You want to wait at least a month after your last frost in the spring when the soil temperature is at least 65 Fahrenheit or around 18 Celsius and when your nighttime air temperatures are consistently above 60 degrees Fahrenheit or about 15 and a half Celsius. Sweet potatoes are very frost sensitive, so do not be in a rush to get them planted. Now, if you're in a short season area, this may be a little tricky because you want at least 100 days from the time you plant until your first frost. You may be forced to heat the soil up a little bit with black landscape fabric and then cover your slips with plastic domes in order to get a decent sized harvest, but it's definitely doable. You can also plant in containers that can be moved and protected in case of colder weather. We'll talk about containers in a minute. Now, you just heard me say cover your slips, and that's not out of modesty. 
Sweet potatoes are planted from slips, not seed and not tubers like white potatoes. Slips are little shoots with exposed roots that are sprouted from fully grown sweet potatoes. You can do these yourself from disease-free specimens from last year's harvest, but most gardeners start out with slips ordered through a seed catalog or purchased from a local nursery. Now, if you plant sweet potatoes in the ground, they should go into a mound of loose soil about 8 inches high, maybe about 12 inches wide. You want to give sweet potatoes plenty of room because they really like to vine and they like to spread. So at a minimum, space the sweet potatoes out about 12 inches apart in the row and then give yourself about three feet in between those rows. And when you plant these slips, break off the lower leaves, just leaving the very top ones intact and then push the slips down deep enough into the ground to cover the roots and the stem all the way up to those few leaves. Your sweet potatoes are going to form all along those nodes underground. Now, of course, I did say you can grow these in small spaces, and you absolutely can. You can do sweet potatoes in raised beds in just about the same manner as in the ground, and you can trellis the vines up a structure, which I've done. We were growing specialty varieties in raised beds, and those vines completely took over the trellises. It was actually very beautiful. You can also grow them in pots. Grow bags are excellent for growing sweet potatoes. Just use a mix of a good potting mix and some aged compost and be sure that your container has good drainage and gets full sun. Now, if you want to keep the vines contained instead of letting them spread and sprawl out over top of your pots, you'll definitely want to have a trellis at the ready for your containers. They will spread. And you do not want to trim the leaves. These are what is feeding the roots. So give them something to climb on if you don't want them taking over or crawling all over. But honestly, they are really very decorative. So if you can let them spread out, do it. Just incorporate them into your decorative landscape. Now, you're going to see recommendations for loose, loamy, sandy soils with lots of compost, and this is pretty true for just about any crop we grow, right? But sweet potatoes are actually sort of known for being able to produce a harvest in other than ideal soil conditions. It's part of the reason why it's such a staple food in so many parts of the world. So do the best you can with the soil, and if you can plant it in soil that's a little bit more acidic, it'll do even better. But in my experience, if the soil is loosened up enough, they'll grow pretty much anywhere. Now, that loose soil is important, though, because you want the roots to be able to fatten up without much in the way of resistance. This is why they do so well in containers. The one thing you don't want is soil with high nitrogen content. So avoid using animal manures in the area that you want to grow sweet potatoes. This can cause really skinny, spindly little roots, and we want nice, fat ones. This episode of the Just Grow Something podcast is sponsored by me. Yes, me and my merch shop. You can support this show by heading over to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash shop and checking out the fabulous garden-themed merchandise going on over there. I've got options with the podcast logo, plus the recently released spring collection and even some fun stickers. Support the show and show off your love of gardening by going to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash shop. The link is in the show notes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, it can take a few weeks for your slips to get established. During this time of establishment, make sure that you keep on top of the weeds. Sweet potato slips don't like the competition from weeds when they're getting started. But after they're established, these vines are going to take off and ultimately they're going to cover the exposed soil in your garden bed and they're going to pretty much choke out anything else that attempts to grow there. And here's the thing about sweet potatoes in an in-ground situation. Wherever the leaf nodes touch the ground, the plant is going to send out roots, and those roots can eventually yield more sweet potatoes. So if you have a really long growing season and a nice big bed that you can dedicate to sweet potatoes, you can get boatloads of sweet potatoes. In fact, gardeners in warmer areas, you may need to spend some time redirecting your sweet potato vines out of your paths and back into the garden bed where they belong. So keep that in mind where you decide to plant them. Now, the great thing about sweet potatoes is once they're established, you really don't have to do too much. If you're growing in containers, keep them evenly watered, but don't keep the root zone constantly wet. That's just inviting root rot. Remember, deeper, less frequent waterings are better than daily shallow watering, and this is especially true in really dry, hot periods. Now, if you're unsure of your soil fertility or you know it's a little bit lacking, you can feed the plants at about the three to four week mark with a plant food that's less nitrogen and more phosphorus and potassium. Look for something that's like a 5-10-10. So now, I said sweet potatoes don't have many pests or diseases, and that's mostly true. They do have their fair share, but usually only one or two are going to be prevalent in any given location, so they usually make it to harvest relatively unscathed. Um, Diseases include stem rot, and there's something called sweet potato scurf, which I've never encountered. It's a fungus, um, along with white rust. Um, The biggest insect pests are white flies and flea beetles. And if they encounter the insect pest once they've already gotten established, they usually make it through to harvest without any problem. The biggest issue you may run into with sweet potatoes is rodents. Voles and moles and other little ground-dwelling creatures enjoy the sweet potatoes just as much as we do. So if you run into this problem, growing in containers may turn out to be a better option for you. Now, once you've gotten your beautiful sweet potatoes to the end of the season, it's time to harvest. If you're growing in containers, Reduce your watering significantly in the final few weeks before harvesting, and do not water in-ground beds at all during about the last four weeks. This is going to help protect those developing roots from splitting. Now, ideally, you want to wait until after the first frost to harvest your sweet potatoes. This concentrates the sugars in the roots. We tend to start harvesting before this, though, and that's because we have customer demand for sweet potatoes earlier than our first frost, which usually doesn't occur until mid-October. Not to mention, we have my demand for sweet potatoes earlier than the first frost. I want to get to those beauties. This works for us okay, because at that time of year, the plants are no longer really actively growing, and we usually get a long stretch of cooler weather that's just perfect for harvesting, so that works for us. This is a personal choice that you can make for yourself. But in either case, once frost hits, harvest your roots immediately. You don't want any of the decay spreading above ground down to the below ground areas. 
Now the important thing after harvest is curing your sweet potatoes. If you pull them straight from the ground and then cook them up right away, they're not gonna taste like much of anything. Curing them concentrates those sugars and prepares them for long-term storage. So you cure sweet potatoes by allowing the roots to lay out and dry on the ground for a few hours after you harvest them, and then place them in a warm place for about 10 to 14 days with a temperature around 85 Fahrenheit and about 85% relative humidity. And I know this is kind of difficult to do in a household environment. So to keep the humidity high, you can wrap your individual sweet potatoes in like perforated plastic bags or newspaper, or you can cover the whole lot with a plastic sheet or a drop cloth and just keep it in a warm space. We wrap our harvest in tarps to trap in the humidity and the heat. Now, once they're cured, store them in a cool, dry location. So cure them where it's warm and moist, store them where it's cool and dry, about 55 degrees Fahrenheit or so. Basements work well for this, provided that they're not damp basements. Properly cured sweet potatoes can keep through the entire winter, but if you don't have a place that's suitable for cold storage or you've got limited space, you can also cook up your sweet potatoes and then cube them and freeze them so you can have them readily available, and you can also can them following all the different canning recommendations. Oh, and just so we're clear, Sweet potatoes and yams are two completely different things, despite the name often being used interchangeably. They are in completely different plant families, they are different botanically, the edible parts are completely different, and yams require very specific growing conditions that are only found in the Caribbean. So although you can find canned sweet potatoes that are marketed as yams, you'll notice that they are also labeled as sweet potatoes and the first ingredient says sweet potatoes. The USDA requires this dual label when sweet potatoes are labeled as yams. I have no idea why any company would still do this, but marketing is what marketing is. Hey, don't forget, I want you to be a part of the 100th episode of this podcast reach out to me on any of my social media platforms, the justgrowsomethingpodcast.com website. Use the link in the show notes to leave me a voice message. Tell me who you are, where you garden, and what you wish you knew when you first started gardening. I don't care if this is the very first episode you've ever listened to and you've only gardened for a month. I want to hear from you and I want to celebrate all of us for the 100th episode of this podcast. The Just Grow Something podcast is a member of the Positively Farming Media podcast network. If you're looking for more great food and ag-focused podcasts to listen to, you should check out the Positively Farming Media playlist on Spotify. That link will also be in the show notes. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and I'll talk to you again soon. You just finished another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic, head on over to JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com for all the episodes, show notes, blog posts, discount codes, and more. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter while you're there. You can also head to Facebook and join a community of other gardeners asking questions and sharing their experiences in the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. And if you want to support this show even further, head to Patreon.com slash JustGrowSomething to find out how. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning, keep growing, and we'll talk again soon.